Gene Therapy. I am Coach Gene Clemens, CWN Sports. Thank you for joining me once again. Appreciate all the love out there for what we do. Make sure that you check out the Gene Therapy column that goes with this. Today we're talking speed. Um, the combine just got finished, and one thing that we know about the combine is that you know, it has become an event all to itself. And one of the things that you have to remember when you have an event all to itself that sometimes you can't really take into consideration things that don't fit with the narrative from said event. So, like, for instance, when, you're, when, you, when you see young men that are getting ready for the combine, you have to remember that they're not necessarily getting ready for football. I think sometimes that gets lost. Like, we think that because someone is getting ready for the combine, that they are, in fact, getting ready for football. And what we find is that most of the time, the things that they're getting ready for at the combine don't actually fit into what they would be getting ready for if they were legitimately getting ready for football. Case in point, the 40-yard dash. If we're really being honest, is there ever a time that the 40-yard dash is applicable in real football outside of a go-route? Like, outside of a go-route, is there ever a time where somebody runs 40 yards straight in football? 99% of the time, nobody is running in straight lines in football. The only time we see it, vertical routes, go route number one, or if someone happens to break, and then they are running free. So either they're running and then someone else is chasing after them. After them, But those are few and far between in the grand scheme of what we see in football. So this idea that the 40-yard dash has ascended to be the premier level event at the combine is kind of silly when you think about it, right? I don't know. How do we get to this point? How do we end up where the 40-yard dash was the premier event at the combine? Well, that that's pretty simple, right? What other thing at the combine can we quantify and look at that it doesn't take any skill to figure out who's good or who's bad. Is it the wonderlick test that they normally used to give that, that didn't really work with anything? Is it the, um, the, the, the testing that they do where it's the bench press and, and all that stuff? The easiest thing to quantify good or bad is the 40-yard dash. Why is that? 
It's because it's a straight line. It's a straight line. You can see where it starts. You can see where it ends. And if you can see where it starts and you can see where it ends, that makes it really simple to figure out who's faster where. If it's a situation where we're looking at the idea of speed, you can see the difference between somebody that runs a 4.4 and somebody that runs a 4.2. That's easily quantifiable. So anybody who is involved in watching the production can see the difference between how fast defensive backs and wide receivers are and offensive and defensive linemen are. They can see the difference when there's somebody who's a bigger player who all of a sudden runs a fast time. That bigger player really does stand out. It's not like a, it's not a, it's not a situation where they, you have to know something about how the event goes in order to understand whether or not they're good at the event. It's really simple to simulcast two guys running next to each other to see which one ends up in front. That's why the 40-yard dash is so so popular. The level that you need to be able to understand who's better and who's not has nothing to do with football. So assessing skill, assessing the things that make a good football player are not inherent within that within that 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 drill and therefore everybody can do it see i don't i i think it's interesting of how we we look at evaluations in football and whether we understand when something is done so that everybody can be involved in it Versus something being done that is strictly made for football. See, the combine used to be just for people who were really interested in football. People who had a real legitimate, like, you know, interest in the inner workings of football. And back in that time, if you remember, they used to almost show all of the events you know, you would follow a group around and they would show you the 40s, but then they would show you the, the three-cone drills. They would show you the... And now it's become a situation where most of the times all you see is the 40-yard dash. When you look at the highlights, most of the highlights that you get are highlights that come from the 40-yard dash. The 40-yard dash is what we normally look at when we're looking and assessing talent from the, from the combine, it is because of this that everybody thinks they know who's good or who's not good because they're basing it essentially off of 40 times. When we see them go through their drills, yeah, okay, it's cool. You can kind of see the guy who, you know, catches the ball versus the guy who drops the ball. But the truth of the matter is, 
without really understanding the game, you don't know the difference between the wide receiver rep that, that one guy did versus the rep that another guy did. Those don't, don't equal out the same. And so, like, you can't quantify who's better and who's not based off of those reps. But you can quantify who's faster. It, it's, it's actually worked um, to the detriment of many players because now a lot of these players are sitting back trying to make things happen, and they are only basing what they do off of the 40. You've, we've seen guys who have performed marginally in the season rocket up the rocket up the draft board based off of a fast 40 time. And if we're being honest, that's just silly. It makes no sense whatsoever. Imagine me saying, hey, you should work on you should work in the brain surgery based off of how fast you completed the test, not whether or not you got the test correct or you know your aptitude for learning within there, just simply based off of how fast you completed that test. If we did that, many people would believe you were foolish. Look, I'm just a simple man. I'm not trying to ruffle no feathers. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, speed only matters when the other requisite skills have been met. So if you're sitting around with a prospect that can't run good routes, has questionable hands, doesn't understand how to work within space, doesn't get off the break, get off the arm jam well. Doesn't track the ball, can't remember his, can't remember the plays. Does it really matter if that dude is fast? <laughs> if that's the case, we should be out here employing a whole bunch of track athletes. We should just go out and find whoever the fastest track athlete is, give them a job, call it a day which is what it feels like sometimes when we're, when we're looking at who begins to work up, a, you know, up, work up, the, up the ladder of a draft as opposed to those who don't. It feels like the guys who run the fastest are the guys who go up the ladder. Now, again, I'm not trying to be a hater. I consider myself to be fast. When I was in high school, I had fast 40 times. Now, they were hand-timed, not laser-timed. But I ran four, five, and four, six, 40s in high school. High four, five, low four, six, 40s in high school. I was fast. I could run by people. I never timed myself after high school. There was never a time where I got timed for a 40 after high school. But I do know this. None of that speed mattered early on when I first started playing football because I was raw. I didn't understand how to use certain things to my, to my advantage. 
it wasn't until I grew in football and I began to understand how to manipulate my body that the speed really became a factor. When I went into college, when I went into college, I remember being told that I could not do certain things because of my size, you know, being 6'4", um, a longer, you know, a longer receiver, I was told that I couldn't be a, a return man. Well, you know, I was too, I was too long for the return game. You all here can hear how ridiculous that is now when you say it, but like back then, when we're talking about um, late, late 90s, there was this, there was this, this thing that, that receivers fit into this box. So I was your prototypical X. That's what I was, that's what I was labeled as, a prototypical X. The outside receiver, throw the deep ball to him, you know, runs a certain amount of routes. And I used to always get upset because I could do so much more than what I was being asked to do. It's one of the things that I really got upset about my, my freshman year, outside of the fact that I was just way better than the guys that they had in front of me. or got, I, I just could not understand how they kept throwing these dudes out there and not putting me on the field. My second year, people got a little bit smarter. In my second year, people realized, okay, you know what, he's a bigger receiver. He has much more command of the route tree. He knows how to get open. He, ha he has an ability to use his body. And he has this speed. How can we best? How can we best add that to the to the fold? Well, it's simple. We can um, put him in the slot. And what they did was they put me in the slot, and they essentially did away with the tight end. We went mostly three receivers, three and four receivers. And I was the slot guy. And what I would do essentially is I would I would operate in the same in the same vein as 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 the tight end would, meaning I would come across like come in motion, stop right short of the tackle, or right around the tackle, and then I would do whatever the blocking was that the tight end would normally do. Whether that was climb to a linebacker, double team and end, whatever it might be. But what it did on in the passing game is it allowed me to use all of my skills, running those out routes, running the, the, the crossing routes, but blowing the top off of the defense so that outside receivers could work underneath. I did a lot of that. And so, like, speed only comes into play when you're a threat. If you're not a threat, then speed doesn't come into play. That's why we see um, athletes like John Ross, who hasn't had the most seamless transition into the NFL since he left. Since he left college, he's he struggled some to find his way to find his footing, because there's a there's probably a thought that he lacks some of those skills necessary to take advantage, at least to truly take advantage of his speed on a regular basis.
you saw that with Darius Hayward Bay, who used a, a really fast 40 time to raise to rise up the ranks and end up as a, a not just a first round pick, but a, a pretty high draft pick. And then he continued to use that speed, as John Ross does and so many others before them, to get opportunity after opportunity because people want to see that speed come to, come to fruition. That's the part that we miss when we're talking about, you know, um, when we're talking about When we're talking about adding these things in, um, I think that it's interesting. I think it's interesting when we look at the combine and we look at all of the, the glamour that's put on it. I can't even fault the players, right? I want to fault players. Like, man, hey, you know, stop worrying about your 40 time and worry about being a better route runner. But how can I fault the players when they can see that these people who make the decisions, right? When they can see that the people who, makes the, who make the decisions, they're making their decisions based off of speed. So can I be mad at a player who decides, hey, man, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to work on my spatial awareness. I'm not going to work on my agility. I'm simply going to work on being faster, the fastest I can be in that 40-yard dash. Because I think that there's the opportunity that with being that, with being who that person is, if they run a faster 40 time, then they have the opportunity to change their life. And if they run a slower 40 time than expected, that has an opportunity to have a negative effect as well. I mean, I mean, just, just, take, just take for example this year, this season, guys that were expected to run really fast 40s. Like in a year where there were so many people who ran a fast 40. Like this, this year, was some of the fastest 40 times in the history of the combine. Some of the fastest 40 times in history. Not the fastest, but some of the fastest. And, and the amount of them, right? So you have more players that ran sub 4-4, Right? 28, 28 players this year ran below a 4.440. 28 players ran below a 4.440, right? So more people ran below a 4.4 than ran in 2021. With receivers, with the receivers, Receivers had double-digit wide receivers that ran sub-4-4. Defensive backs had double-digit defensive backs that ran sub-4-4. 
But if I ask you to name the top defensive backs, right? If I, if I ask you to name the top defensive backs, are all of those top defensive backs going to be the top in speed? There's an easy answer to this right away, and it's no. I mean, let's just, let's just for, for the sake of argument, let's look at wide receivers, right? So in the 40-yard dash, the fastest wide receivers this year, Tyquan Thornton, Vellis Jones, Calvin Austin III, Danny Green, Bo Melton, None of those guys, none of those five guys, those five fastest times that have been run by a wide receiver this year, none of them are considered to be the best wide receiver in college. It's not until you start getting into the people after them who also ran fast for the, you know, for the record. Um, and, and I said double-digit wide receivers. There were nine. So not double digits, nine. There were nine that ran sub four, four. Actually eight, excuse me. So it's not until we get to Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave that we get to wide receivers that people believe are the top wide receivers in college. One of the guys that people believe is one of the best wide receivers in, in, in college, right? Guys who think, who they believe are going to be, um, you know, the, the, best, the best prospects, one of the best prospects, excuse me, is Traylon Burks. And Traylon Burks ran a 4.5540 at the Combine. A 4.5540. At 6'2", 225 pounds. To a 225-pound man running a 4.55 is impressive. But it's not as impressive to many as these other guys who are considered to be speed demons. Demons. Now, Burks have, has been compared to guys like A.J. Brown. He's been compared to guys like um, Debo, Debo Samuel. He has that physicality, that physical look to him that's similar to a D.K. Metcalf. But he doesn't have the same level of speed of some of these other guys. So now he goes from a guy who people thought could be one of the top wide receivers to come out this year. He goes from being one of the top wide receivers that might come out this year to all of a sudden being dropped down. Oh, well, you know, I had him third. I've heard, I've seen people write, well, you know, I never really thought he was the top anyway, I had him third. I had him fourth. Those people are lying. So many people had this man touted as the number one guy, but they also thought that he would come out and run 
some ridiculous time. They thought he would come out and run sub 4-4. Heck, they probably thought he would at least come out and run in the 4-4s. But now that he didn't run in the 4-4s, now that he didn't run sub 4-4, all of a sudden, that's the, that's the thing that's going to drop this man. Meanwhile, nothing about his game has changed. Nothing about what he did on the field has changed. He's the same player he was while he was beating up on SEC West competition. Remember, he went to Arkansas. He went to Arkansas. He doesn't have a quarterback that's being considered as one of the top quarterbacks in the nation. He's not, he's not operating in an offense that's putting up 50 and 60 points a game against good competition. He is with Arkansas. And in Arkansas, against Alabama and Ole Miss and, Missis and Mississippi State and LSU and Texas A&M, this man put up 66 receptions for 1,100 yards and 11 touchdowns in 12 games. I mean, just think about that. He had 475 yards as a true freshman. He had 820 yards as a sophomore. And then this past year, all, first team all SEC in an SEC that involves Georgia, Alabama, Texas A&M, Florida, Auburn. You get what I'm going with, right? He was first team all SEC in an SEC with all of those Alabama receivers that are great. Like, like this guy is legitimately good. This guy is legitimately good. He's legitimately talented. And yet, based off of a time that he ran in a 40-yard dash, which he's never going to do in a real game, there are people who are dropping this guy down. The, I think, I think the, the NFL grade on him is boom or bust. He's considered to be a boom or bust. That is crazy to me. The funny part also is if you look at his 40 time, which no one never really talks about, if you look at his 40 time and you look at him run the 40, you can tell that his first three to four steps are just not as fast, which means that as he gets going, as he continues to go, he gets faster and faster. Way faster than Michael Thomas, by the way. Much faster than Michael Thomas. Much faster than some of the other players who have come around. His explosion isn't what you would have thought it would be, 
with the vertical jump, 33 inches, but he broad jumps, he broad jumps plus 10, 10 three, I think. So now we're talking about a guy in Traylon Burks who people think is going to fall down. And imagine if a guy like that lands with a team who doesn't need him to be the number one wide receiver. Imagine if he lands with a team that doesn't need him to be the savior. Imagine if he drops to like the Bucks. Imagine if he drops to the Packers. Imagine if he drops to teams that don't need a number one wide receiver. But now they're going to get a number one wide receiver talent because people devalued him based off of a 40 time. And this essentially is why the rich stay rich and the poor stay poor in the NFL. Many times, the reason why your favorite team continues to lose is because they continue to make the same mistake over and over and over again. It's really that simple. When we look at a lot of these teams and how they choose players, if they are not choosing players based off of the overall talent and they are and they're basing their decision off of one particular metric that doesn't even seamlessly or accurately translate from one from the from the from the skill drill that they're doing to the actual game then you're going to get a lot of people making mistakes does speed matter? Absolutely. Speed always matters. There's never going to be a time where I tell you, oh my gosh, it doesn't matter about how fast you are. Yes, speed matters. But speed matters. It matters in a particular way. And you can't put the cart before the horse. So if you have someone who is fast, but doesn't do all of the other things, then we're already behind the eight ball. We're already beyond where we should be when we're thinking about how to, like how, how to, how to evaluate and how to, um, how to assess this talent. Again, this isn't, this isn't just me. I see, I see it all I see it all the time. I see it all the time in sports. You see it all the time in in other sports. How many times have you seen in basketball where a guy can jump high and so because he has an ability to jump high he gets more love. How many times have you seen it where a guy is tall and just because he's tall in basketball he gets more love or she gets more love, never mind the requisite skills necessary to do the job. We see it so much that we actually have, have, have subconsciously built in mechanisms to keep ourselves from making those mistakes. If you look around the, NF, the NBA, Seven-footers do not run the NBA. In fact, 
there are more impactful guys at 6'3 and 6'4 than there are at 7 foot or, or above. If you look in football, there are more people, there are more players who are impactful in the game who don't run sub 4'4 four four than those that do. Does it mean that the ones that do can't be successful? No. It means that there's a better opportunity out there that the ones who understand the other parts of the game will have more success. Guess what? Guess what happens to somebody when they're not the elite level fast? It forces them to learn the game completely. Because that's the only way they're going to beat out the upper echelon athlete. The only way they beat out the upper echelon athlete is by having the requisite skills necessary to be able to get over on the more athletic person. Whether that be a faster, stronger, bigger Whatever combination of that it is, you always find the guys who understand the game mentally and who've trained themselves to be able to do everything well, not just one thing well, that has success. Cooper Cup is Cooper Cup, not because he's an elite level athlete. Cooper Cup is a Cooper Cup because he wasn't an elite level athlete. If he was, there's a chance he may have like not built out his game. If he was an elite level athlete, he may not have ended up at um, Eastern Washington. And if he doesn't go to Eastern Washington, and he goes to a big time program, he would have probably sat behind people and then earned his spot. But in that time, he would have been told, hey, listen, you're fast, just be fast, right? They would have leaned on his skill, the one, the one elite level skill that he had, and hoped that he worked on the other skills in that amount of time that they had him for. He would have probably jumped to the league a year earlier than what he probably should have. Why? Because his elite level skill, that elite level trait, would have said, hey, listen, you can go run this really fast time and get drafted. But he would have walked into the NFL where they don't care about how fast you are after the combine and after the draft, where they just want to know how good of a football player you are. He would have walked into the NFL and upon walking into the NFL, realized that he did not have the requisite skills to survive in the NFL and he would have had to get on his grind then. Instead, what happens what happens? He goes to East of Washington. He has the opportunity to play and develop and work on his skills. He got his requisite 10,000 hours worth of reps. So his requisite skill development is there. He's able to then 
take that skill that he's developed and allow it to translate to any level. So it doesn't matter that he played at the FCS level. It doesn't matter that he was an FCS player because what he's doing, he's doing at a high level regardless. See, like skill development doesn't have a level. Speed, speed has a level. So like the, the things that you were able to get away with in high school because you were fast, you may not be able to get away with in college because you're going to see people who are fast like you in college. Some of the things you're able to get away with in college because you're fast, you won't, you won't be able to get away with in the NFL simply because you're fast because not only are you going to meet people who are fast like you, you are going to meet technicians of the game. People who understand the game at a level with their technique that make them practically impossible to stop. That make them practically impossible to hold down. And now your speed doesn't mean a thing. Your speed doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. The only time we care about your speed is when your speed is added on top of all of the other skills necessary in order to be successful. If those skills don't exist, then it doesn't matter. If those skills don't exist, then it does not matter. It really does make me, it really does irk me and, and it gives me pause about the draft because I often wonder what the value of the draft is, right? Like what's the value of, not the draft, excuse me, I said draft, I meant combine. What's the value of the combine if we're not really going to use the combine for what it's supposed to be for if if players are going to opt out of events, then, then what's the use of, of the combine, right? So here, I, I never, you, you know, y'all got, you know me. I, I don't like to just talk without giving some solutions. So here are some of my solutions. Because the combine is invite only, if I invite you to the combine, you're doing all the drills. And if you don't do all the drills, or if you say you're not going to do all the drills, then you're not going to come to the combine. And then you can do all of that glad-handed and pandering at your pro day. Right? So what we'll do is we'll bring you into town. You can go through all of the measurements and we can get all the medicals that we need from you at the combine. And then we send you home. Not, hey, hang out for a few days, chill, talk to the media, try to raise your profile and then do not compete. Do not work out. No, 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 that's not how it's gonna roll. 
So that's so that's the first thing. If you decide to take the invitation to come to the combine, then you are deciding that you want to actually compete. You want to actually perform. You want to actually work out. And if you don't, if you don't want to do the three cone drill, if you don't want to do the L drill, then okay, cool. We'll send you home. And we will bring somebody else to take your spot. Somebody willing to do all of those drills. Because every year, there are people that should be at the combine who are not. Every year, there are people who should be at the combine who are not invited. And so this at least gives those guys an opportunity to come and show what they can do. Also, we got to get away from the bench press. We've already talked about the fact that the bench press does nothing for evaluation of real legitimate, like, football-related power. Because the bench press doesn't do anything on the field. If you are ever laying on your back, pushing somebody up, that means you've been defeated. Right? That means you've been defeated. And who wants to be sitting in a defeated posture? Not I. So that's number two. Get rid of, get rid of the bench press. Well, what are we putting in, in place of the bench press then? What do we show for strength? Hey, how about we do power cleans and hang cleans? You can still do 225 because everybody, if you're able to bench 225, you should be able to power clean 225 because that's a full body workout. That's a full body explosion exercise. And now it becomes something that you can actually see what people can do. Now, because we're doing power cleans and not just bench press, we're going to need to move that to another day, right? We don't need to do, we don't need to have somebody do 35 reps of power cleans or of hang cleans and then turn around and have to do the broad jump and vertical jump. So we might have to move that to another day, right? But we, or, or put that on the back end of things. Don't, doesn't have to be the first thing people do in the day. But that's how we change that around and make things more football specific. Again, I don't really particularly care about whether or not it's a good show if my number one option is to try to make it a better experience for the players. My last thing, we need better... We need better position-specific drills and competition. Why are we not doing pass rush, one-on-one -on -one pass rush, wide receiver DB one-on-ones at the combine? Why are we not giving these guys an opportunity to compete? Hell, why not even put a seven-on-seven -seven together? 
where you get a chance to see a quarterback make real legitimate decisions, not just throw the ball. Make things more football. Bring football back. And if we have to keep this farce of a 40-yard dash that doesn't really tell us anything football-related, cool. We just need to make everything else around it more more specific to the, the game and what the game needs to thrive. I don't think that's too much to ask. I actually think it makes perfect sense. Like when we when we look at what we're doing as a sports society, I don't think it's too hard to figure out that we're missing the point on some of these combine things. How many times do we have to see somebody skyrocket up the ladder or skyrocket up a draft board simply because they ran fast only to watch them get into the league and do horribly not because they're bad they're a bad player but because they were drafted too high they had too high of an expectation on them and now they're looked at as a bust when really they're exactly who they should have been in the NFL. It's not Jalen Rager's fault that the, that the um, Philadelphia Eagles took him over Justin Jefferson. It's not anybody's fault that they took another quarterback over Lamar Jackson. Like... If, I'm sorry, it's not any of those quarterbacks' fault that the teams put, took them over Lamar Jackson. At the end of the day, that's on the people who made the selection. Those guys, those women, those decision makers should have known better. That's their job to know better. It's their job to evaluate better. And we need to start holding them accountable for their job. Not blame the coach when all of a sudden the players are bad. Stop blaming the coach because everybody keeps telling us you're supposed to be drafting these guys ready-made, right? And if a coach only has three years before you're trying to fire him, two to three years, does he have time to develop or is he only worried about winning? Because if they're only worried about winning, then they're never going to develop. They're never going to get things done. And I don't blame them because if you, if they don't win, you're going to fire them after two years, after three years. It used to be that you gave a head coach four to five years. Now it's two to three. And sometimes you fire him after one for no reason at all. David Culley. So if you're going to have those, those microwave expectations, shouldn't we be holding you to higher standard when it comes to who you are taking in the draft? If you're doing a horrible job at drafting, we shouldn't be blaming the coach because you gave them – we shouldn't be blaming the cook because the owner bought bad groceries. 
doesn't make any sense to blame the cook because the owner doesn't know how to shop for the ingredients. We got to be better about these things, man. It doesn't make any sense to me. Ladies and gentlemen, that's another episode of Gene Therapy. I'm Coach Gene Clemens. Thank you for joining me once again. Make sure that you are following us, CWN Sports, so you can get all of the podcasts and all of the columns that come with the podcast. Stay tuned. I'm going to have a second Gene Therapy pod and column that's going to drop this Sunday. So you won't want to miss that. I feel like I got to give you guys double. I've been I've been holding out on you as things have been going on with the draft and making sure that you guys know what's going on in my mind. This really is a, a great opportunity for me to, you know, have a therapeutic look at things. So I really do appreciate all of you that follow the pod and follow the column and and follow me on all my social media platforms at Gene Clemens. Make sure that you subscribe to the channel, the YouTube channel, Coach Gene Clemens. And if you're on Facebook, make sure that you are following the page, Coach Gene Clemens. Until next time, y'all be blessed.